Good morning. It's good to see those of you who are uh, in town for the holiday weekends. Before I start the sermon, I, I want to say this. I, uh, I love the chance and, uh, to, to serve a church that values my family and I being able to get out of this Houston heat for a bit in the summer. But when we are out of town, we, we just miss you and love being back in this room together with you this morning. So, um, as he said, we are in a series in the book of Exodus. Exodus is the uh, second book of the Bible. Exodus means a going out or a departure. And Exodus is the story of Israel being brought out of slavery in Egypt, out of captivity uh, in Egypt. Um, in the book of Exodus, it's a story. It's a gripping story written with heroes and villains it's not just any story, it is our story, it is the story that unfolded and gave us Christ, and it's the story that we have been grafted into. And so, being a story, it's worth asking, what do good stories do? For most of human history, and really for a lot of the world today, stories are a uh, culture's way of maintaining their history. Stories create a shared identity, a common understanding of who we are and who we are or not. It's why your closest friends are the ones that you have stories with. The ones that you can say, hey, remember that time when we, remember when we did this or that. It's why when you are new to a church or new to really any community, uh, you might have people that you, you know, that you hit it off with and get along with, but cultivating deep, deep friendships takes a long time because it takes a while to create stories. Stories, good stories, they also have a way of placing you there. They have a way of um, moving you back into it where you can see the sights, the sounds, the smells. They're not just a recitation of facts. They, they draw you in. And it's why bad stories finish like this. I guess you just had to be there. <laughs> Amen? We've all told the story. Like We've all told the story to somebody, recap something. They look at us blankly, and then we just say, well, I, I guess you just had to be there. Right? It's happened to all of us just that we told a bad story. That's what happened. So here's what stories do. They identify you with your culture's past. They create a shared identity and they place you there, but there's something else that they do. Stories have a climax. They have a crescendo. They, they don't leave you in the past. They move you somewhere. They move you to a desired end. And Exodus is no different. The story of Exodus as a whole and the individual parts of Exodus, they have a climax. They have a crescendo. And so our text today is going to take us back into our past, into our shared identity, into our story to lead us forward. And it crescendos, our text will crescendo in a theological principle, a theological principle that it is no overstatement to say sits at the heart of redemption. It is no overstatement to say that this theological principle that our text is going to crescendo into today sits at the heartbeat of the story of redemption in the Scriptures. And so what is that principle? Um, I will tell you when we get to it. Our text today, as we look at it, it's going to have four parts to it. An accusation, a response, a promise, and a command. An accusation, a response, a promise, and a command. And so let's start with the accusation. But to understand uh, the accusation that Moses is going to make, we need to know the immediate context of chapter 5 where our text begins. So Israel, they're in captivity in Egypt, and Pharaoh, the king, I mean, he's a taskmaster. 
He is a cruel, cruel ruler, has his thumb down on the people of Israel. Um, God calls Moses uh, to go and to speak to Pharaoh, and this is how chapter 5 opens. Verse 1, afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said it to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? That's a searching question, if ever there was one. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And so Moses and Aaron, they go to Pharaoh, and they say, um, The God of Israel says, Let his people go, that they can go into the wilderness and have a feast. And Pharaoh responds with, Who is this Lord? Why, why should I obey him? Listen, Moses, you, you, you should have figured this out by now, Moses. I, I don't obey. People obey me. Who is this Lord that I should obey? And the rest of chapter 5 goes like this. Pharaoh making life worse for Israel. It, it was bad, and now he's made it worse. And then the people of Israel come to, uh, not to Pharaoh, they come to Moses, to Aaron, and they say, look at what you did. Listen, our, our life was not great before, but now it's worse. It, it was, listen, we were not happy with how things were, but now it is worse. Look at what you have done. Look at us now. And this is where we pick it up in verse 22 with Moses responding to the people of Israel, turning back to the Lord, and he says this. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Did y'all catch that? Did you catch what Moses just said? Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why have you done this, Lord? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Did you see what Moses just did? Did you catch the word evil there being used twice? Oh, Lord, why did you do evil to this people? Pharaoh does evil to this people. Oh, Lord, why, why did you send me to make it worse? Why, Lord, did you do what Pharaoh does to the people of Israel? Why, these are supposed to be your people. Why did you do evil to them? One academic, he put it this way, so the language that Moses uses, it's as if he's accusing God and Pharaoh of having banded together to persecute the Israelites. This is a serious accusation for Moses. But it doesn't stop right there. Did you see how the verse ended? Or 23 ended? You have not delivered your people at all. See, in chapter 3, um, God said, listen, I have seen the affliction of my people Israel, and I will deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians. And this is Moses saying, you have not done this. You have not done what you said you would do. And those words, at all, at the end, those are the translator's effort. The, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, translated into English. Those are the translator's, effort, translator's effort at drawing out the emotion of the Hebrew text. That's the translator's effort at trying to draw out the emotive language that Moses uses right here. One commentator looking at the language, this is what he had to say. The construction of the Hebrew is for the purpose of affirmation and emphasis. Moses' words are pointed and sharp. Yahweh, that's the Lord, has not done what he said he would do. 
You said you would deliver us. You said you would deliver us, and you have not delivered us. You did not come through on your promise. You see, at the core of Moses' accusation right here to the Lord is, I can't trust you. I cannot trust you. And this being a story meant to draw you in, not simply a theological textbook for you to interpret and understand Moses, but for you to identify with Moses, I find this to be an honest human moment for Moses. While if this, if this were a modern movie, if we were a, making a modern movie out of this scene, this is the scene where lightning strikes. Probably Moses. Probably dead. But I find this to be an incredibly honest moment from Moses, because who has not felt like this? Who would raise their hand and say, at no point in my life did I feel like God was failing me or untrustworthy or not coming through? Who would raise their hand and go, never, never have I thought, never have I thought, God, I can't trust you. I find this to be an incredibly honest moment from Moses. And at the core of his accusation is, I can't trust you. You are treating us like Pharaoh. You have not come through on what you said you would do. And so now God responds. But the Lord said to Moses, this is verse 1, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his lands. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. Listen, Moses, you are going to see what I am going to do to Pharaoh. You are going to see what I am going to do to that king, because I am Yahweh. I am Yahweh. Why does it matter that he's just open up in four times? This is going to get used before here in verse 8. Four times he's going to say, I am Yahweh. Why does it matter? Here's why. This is a royal formula that was commonly used by kings in the ancient Near East to begin a royal edict. In our passage, the great king of creation announces his plans for his people in Egypt. God is saying, I am the king, I am Pharaoh's king, whether Pharaoh knows it or not, I am the king that is above all kings, and I know it doesn't seem like it's now, but Moses, I am Yahweh. I am the king. I am the king that all kings sit in subjection to. But it doesn't end there because there's more to this name, Yahweh, and so let's keep reading. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Now, I need to, I need to pause here and, and address something because uh, th- this is a reference back to Genesis, and multiple times in Genesis, God appeared to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob. It's called a theophany when he does. But you see where it says, by my name, the Lord, or by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known The challenge here is that the word Yahweh, the name Yahweh, is in those passages in the book of Genesis, Genesis being the first book of the Bible uh, before Exodus. And so what's going on here? Well, confessionally, it's it's extremely difficult to understand what's happening here, and uh, the commentators are all over the map on what they think is going on right here. But here's what I think is the best way to understand it. I think the best way to understand it is to say that in Genesis with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, while they knew the name, they did not fully experience the nature or the power that comes with the name 
Yahweh, and they certainly did not experience it the way Moses or Israel or Pharaoh or the Egyptians are about to. That's what I think is going on. But let's keep reading. It says, I also established, verse 4, my covenant with them. This is with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. When it says he remembered my covenant, that, that's talking about the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant that God made with Abraham, the covenant that in its origin, in its, um, at its beginning in Genesis 12, began like this, that I will bless those who bless you, and in who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." Why does it matter? Why does this matter that we see that this is what he's referencing back to, uh, this Abrahamic covenant? Here's why. Because he's trying to tell Moses, listen, there is a global, historic, redemptive movement that I am working right now that began with Abraham. And this covenant, it says God remembered. And when it says God remembered, when you see that in the Bible, that is not um, an intellectual exercise. That's not like me and you forgetting something, something sparks our memory, and then we remember it. That is a statement by God, a promise to act. It is a promise to be faithful to the covenant that he began. It is a promise to act. It is him saying to Moses, listen, I have not forgotten you. I, I have a global redemptive story that I am writing, and I am going to come through on what I have said I would do. I am not going to abandon my plan. Therefore, I am not abandoning you, Moses, and I'm not abandoning the people of Israel. So our text begins today with an accusation from Moses. God, I, I can't trust you. You're treating us just like Pharaoh. And then God responds. He responds with, I, I am Yahweh. I have entered into a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. Listen to me. I will act. I will come through on what I have said I would come through on. I will act. And now, now we have a promise, and it's in this promise that we get to the theological principle that sits at the heart of the Bible. And this promise is seven I will statements. I will, I will, I will seven times. And so we're going to read them, and then we're going to put them together. Verse 6, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into a land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. Egypt is not your home. I have a land that is waiting for you. And this word redeem, this word redeem, it's the Hebrew word ga'al. It, it's a technical word that would have some unfolding development as the Old Testament and history would move forward. But I want to read you a definition from it because at the end of the definition, there's a, a line that I think is meaningful to how we understand our text and what's happening and what God is saying right here. The Hebrew word ga'al, to redeem is often associated with a family member who comes to the assistance of a relative or friend. This is the, the kinsman idea that gets unfolded. 
This could entail rescuing a relative who has become a debt slave because of poverty. Since God speaks of Israel as his son, here it is, he may be pictured as a father who comes to redeem his enslaved child. A father who comes to redeem his enslaved child. And why? Why does it matter that we see this? Because in the middle of the seven I will promises, in the seven, in the middle of these I wills is this line right here. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. Yesterday, I sat in that room right over there every Saturday afternoon, um, and the first thing I do is I just read the text out loud, and when I hit this line, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, I just started to tear up because I can so vividly remember the day in my life when this wasn't true, when it just wasn't true. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And it is this language that runs throughout the Bible and sits at the heart of the relationship between God and his people. And it is this language that the theological principle comes out of. And that theological principle, you know what it's called? The Emmanuel principle. Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. Us. It is woven into Israel's story. It sits at the heart of God's promise to redeem, and you will find it in places like Jeremiah and Ezekiel when the new covenant is being prophesied and promised and restoration to Israel is being promised. This Emmanuel principle, God with us, it is the central promise and hope of the Bible. It's how the Bible begins. Genesis 3, sin happens. What happens? God comes right down. New heavens, new earth. Revelation 22. What are we doing? We're at home with God. God with us. And this promise, God with us, would be the ideal place to just stop the sermon, spend 10 minutes applying this to us. But the problem is our text does not finish in verse 8 with a promise. It finishes in verse 13 with a command. And so we're going to get to that before we apply this. So here's the command. Verse 9. Let's read it. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. God says to Moses, go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And Moses says to God, listen, he's not going to listen to me. Israel won't listen to me. How in the world is Pharaoh going to listen to me? And by the way, I have uncircumcised lips. What in the world are uncircumcised lips? Uncircumcised is uh, used to speak of things that are unholy or profane. It's um, the uncircumcised heart in Leviticus 26 or parallel to unclean lips in Isaiah Six And Moses' point was this, I am not worthy to go and speak to Pharaoh on behalf of you or on behalf of the people of Israel. I am not worthy of going and doing this. God, listen, I, I have unholy, unclean, uncircumcised lips. I am not worthy of going to Pharaoh and speaking on your behalf for the people of Israel. And so how does God respond? Verse 13. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge. That's the Hebrew word for command. About the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And so Moses, Moses says, I don't feel worthy, God. 
I don't, I, I don't feel worthy of going and speaking to Pharaoh on behalf of you. And here's what God does not do. God does not come down and give Moses a hug. He does not come down and say, listen, Moses, you know what? You're right, man. I, I so get it. I, I would hate for you to do something you feel uncomfortable doing. Moses, I didn't even think about that when I told you. I didn't think that you wouldn't feel. I, I just, I am, uh, I'm really sorry. I don't want you to feel insecure, Moses. I'm, I'm sorry. I never should have asked you to do that. That is not what God says. God says, I hear you. Now go. Go. Go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. Why? Why, Moses? Because from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, God with us has always been my plan, and I am working that plan out right now through you, and I'm going to work it out through Pharaoh, whether he knows it or not. I am writing a redemptive story that is going to unfold through you, and this redemptive story, it is going to crescendo one day, Moses, and it's going to crescendo in Matthew 1 with a virgin who will conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means this is your turn. When I do this, that's your turn, which means God with us. God with us. The crescendo one day was with a son who would come to redeem and to deliver, who would on the cross bear the burdens of Egypt, who would on the cross overcome the harshest Pharaoh the world has ever seen, sin and death, who would in his resurrection lead the single greatest exodus the world has ever known single greatest exodus the world has ever known. And through Jesus' death and resurrection, those seven I will statements become seven I have statements. I will deliver you becomes I have delivered you. I will redeem you becomes I have redeemed you. I will be your God becomes I am your God. This is what the manual principle means for us and for you, like Moses, who might not feel worthy of this grace. God says, God with us is for you anyway. If you feel unredeemable, it doesn't mean that you are. And for those of us who have spent the last few years feeling like we have drifted farther and farther and farther and farther away from this Emmanuel, God with us, God would say to you, come home, because Emmanuel is still here for you. God with us is still here for you you. And this Emmanuel principle, it does not end in Matthew. It does not end in Matthew 1. It's also applied to the Christian life. As you know, in 2 Corinthians 6, where Paul, the author of so much of the New Testament, was writing to the church about holiness and how to live holy lives. Do you know he uses the Emmanuel principle? 2 Corinthians 6, 16. Um, there's a lot going on in this passage that I, I don't have time to get into and explain, but I want you to see it. Well, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple, the place where God dwells, of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You see, the point is the plan wasn't just about a redeemed people, a delivered people, but a holy and transformed people, a people whose communal and individual lives look like God with us. Sojourn, this, this is the story of Exodus applied, a redeemed community, a transformed community whose life looks like God with us, who live in light of Emmanuel who came, who live in light of the greatest Exodus the world has ever seen. And so what does it look like? How does this 
apply with us day in, day out. So when we talk about make disciples, multiply parishes, plant churches, let me tell you what some of that means or part of what that means in light of this. Part of what that means is that making disciples of one another is reminding the person next to you that God is with you. Now go and live like it. God is with you, now go and live like it, which means when you are tempted to look at porn, you remember that God is with you. When you are tempted to greed, you remember that God is with you. When you are tempted to gossip or division, you remember God is with us. It means that when we multiply parishes, start these new communities together, we don't just do it for our needs and Uh, because our parish has gotten too big or we don't really like the people that are in our parish. We do it to make room for our neighbors. We do it to make room for those who need to come into the community of God with us so that they will know God is with me. And I want to say, Sojourn, that I, for a little, for, for too long now, too many of us have become too concerned with what we can get out of our church and our hopes for what we can get from our church and not concerned enough with what our neighbors need from our church. I'm going to say that again. Too long, not all of us, too many of us, have been too concerned with what we get from our church and not concerned enough with what our neighbors need from our church. Because God is writing a story of redemption right here and he's writing it through us. We live where we live, and you live by the neighbors you live by for a reason. God wants you to see them with the lens of God with us, God through you going to them. Which means, which means we need to be courageous and willing to open up our mouths and talk about the grace of God that we have in Christ, and we need to be hospitable and willing to open up our homes so our neighbors can come in and experience the grace among us. Moses said that Pharaoh won't listen. God said, go and tell him anyway. If you say, my neighbor won't listen, God might say, go and tell them anyway. Go and tell them anyway. It starts with building a relationship, getting to know your neighbors. People are not projects, but you live near the people you live near for a reason. And when we plant churches, we do it for the same reason, to go and tell that Emmanuel, God with us, has come. Emmanuel, God with us, has come. There is a redemptive story that God is writing, the Exodus fulfilled here in the Heights, in Houston, in his world today, and he's invited us to participate and be a part in what he is doing. This is his story to write. He is the one who takes us. He is the initiator, and he is the one who has called us in and then sends us out to be ambassadors of this great, grand story. It is a story of redemption that God is writing in your life in our collective and communal life and that he is writing in our neighborhood and he is writing in our city. And this is our chapter, our window of time where we get to, to be this family caught up in this redemptive story for the good of one another and for the good of our neighbors. Because Emmanuel, God with us, has come, who stood in the gap on the cross, who was put into a grave and who When he left that grave, he led the single greatest exodus the world has ever known. Let's pray. Father, we are here and we are in this room because you sent your son into the world on our behalf to die in our place, to be buried, to be resurrected from the grave. I pray that we would 
be a people whose individual and communal lives would look like God with us. God with us. That we would be a people who take holiness seriously, who take your mission in the world seriously, because your son came. Emmanuel came. For those who are in this room right now, part of our family who have drifted, who just feel their heart drifting from you right now, I'm, I'm asking you, Holy Spirit, to just whisper gently to their heart that they have not drifted too far and that they can come home. And I pray that in Christ's name.